The loss of a succession of regional and community banks, starting with Silicon Valley Bank, has made many of us wonder, is our money safe? And is there more to come? Joining us today to discuss these questions and make sense of what happened are two bank CEOs, James Beckwith and Simone Lago Marcino. James, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, what happened? Well, it was a classic run on the bank scenario. What may be different this time around is that it happened in such a short period of time, really one day, really a couple hours. The ability to move money today is much greater than it was 20 years ago. And so on that famous or infamous Thursday, $42 million ran at $42 billion ran mm -hmm. out of the And it forced the regulators' hands. Banks fail because of lack of liquidity. And when you have $42 billion run out of the bank, um, they couldn't make their cash letter. And so the regulators had to shut them down. Now, we could talk about how that happened and what the causes were, but it was simply inadequate controls over interest rate risk and liquidity, uh, which followed a rapid rise and growth of Silicon Valley Bank. Management didn't see it coming. And uh, unfortunately for their shareholders and bondholders and their customers, it failed. Well, it's interesting um, how you describe it. Um, Greg Becker was just testifying before Congress. And Simone, when he went before Congress, he blamed everybody but his dog, it seemed like, for what went wrong. As a matter of yes. fact, it, he he talked about, you know, that the regulators were overzealous, that, you know, uh, you know, borrowers and, and depositors didn't act uh, adequately. What's your take on going a little bit deeper on the actions of the bank itself that led to the circumstance? Well, it, it is interesting. I actually had an opportunity to review the testimony that Greg gave in front of the Senate, Senate Committee, Health, uh, Financial Services Committee, and, and um, he did seem to blame the rapid rise in interest rates as one of the reasons that that his bank failed. But as, of course, as James has pointed out, um, that there are many other banks that are doing well. It wasn't the rise in interest rates on its own. It was the fact that they weren't managing interest rate risk to the level that they should have been managing it. Um, but you look back, and it was interesting. I did not realize all of this until I read the testimony. They grew to $71 billion at the end of 2019. And then they grew to hundred over $100 billion at the end of 2020. And then they grew up to $212 billion at the end of 2022. I mean, when you look at the rapid growth that they had, it is surprising that they didn't seem to have the controls in place, uh, not just interest rate risk, but other controls in place. And I do think, I mean, when you look at 94% of uninsured deposits, I definitely think that that fed into um, the, the people when, when they announced the sale of some of their securities and they were going to take a loss of $1.8 billion on the sale of those securities, that panicked people. And as James said, in the course of just a couple days, you know, with the use of 
of, of electronic funds transfer that we now have. You can read a, you know, a, a news report on, you know, on the news on your on your phone, and then you turn around and click into your online banking and say, I want to transfer all of my money out of this bank. And I think social media did play a lot, a, a big role in it. And I think in his testimony, he said that, but I think there's other reasons behind it that, that really um, he did not talk about. Well, James, the, the thing that it seems very puzzling is that in his uh, testimony and also referred to in a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, at one point, Silicon Valley Bank had over a thousand people working on regulatory compliance. And so between, if you take him at his word, which I'm not sure about that, but let's take him at his word, and uh, the bank really did have a thousand people working on compliance. And then on the other side, you have the government regulators. How could everybody miss um, that sort uh, of exposure for that long? Well, I think you're you're touching on the the salient point, uh, Scott, in that there was a huge miss. Um, I'm I did read some of his testimony, Simone, and and it's just inconceivably it's conceivable to me how he can't personally take responsibility for this. Uh, it's a shameful act of what he didn't do, I should say, and I think. To your question, Scott, I mean, it's a lack of an ability to see the forest through the trees. They're working on minutiae, uh, probably at the account level from a compliance perspective, but didn't take in consideration uh, what a rapid rise in interest rates would do to their securities portfolio, thus eliminating that securities portfolio for, li for liquidity purposes. And there's also the question about how he announced his... Uh, his sale of the available for sales securities. Uh, he announced it one day that he was going to take a $1.8 billion loss, like Simone said. And the next day he said, oh yeah, by the way, we have to raise capital. Any prudent bank management team would do it the other way around. You get the commitment for capital first, and then you execute the sale. I'm wondering, Scott, whether this was just hubris on behalf of that CEO. Obviously, it's bearing true in his testimony and and certainly, um, you know, what happened to his bank. We, all banks, work with the public confidence and trust. And Silicon Valley Bank lost that with their supposed venture partners, of which they banked. Now, Silicon Valley Bank, what a unique organization, a monoline, if you will. Maybe they did a little bit in the wine business, Simone, but mostly it was venture banking. And they didn't realize that these folks that they had been working with for 40 years could turn on a dime. And it was a huge mistake. A poorly constructed balance sheet, lack of oversight uh, from, a, from a board perspective, did they have deep banking expertise on their board? I don't think so. And then obviously, um, the CEO and the CFO just really missing the mark. Now, from a regulatory perspective, uh, that's there's been some testimony, some reports by the Federal Reserve as to what happened. And I think they are 
taking responsibility for, you know, their role in this. So they're stepping up and saying, hey, yeah, maybe we should have done things differently, i.e. been a lot more aggressive with respect to putting forth corrective actions. So I think that's a lesson learned, uh, certainly by the Federal Reserve of San Francisco. Um, and I would expect those folks who, uh, who are uh, regulated by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco are going to have to comply with, I'm going to argue, with some more stringent standards uh, that they're going to put forth. Mm. So I'd like to comment on, on that, if I may, Scott. I um, have the privilege to, to actually serve on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And I think there is a misperception out in the market that each individual bank regulates the banks that are in their region. And in fact, the Board of Governors sets the regulation, sets the, the guidelines for how the examiners are going to examine banks. And yes, the examiners, for instance, for the Federal Reserve Board of San Francisco, or the Federal Reserve of San Francisco, they operate out of the San Francisco branch, but they truly are reporting directly to the Board of Governors. It is, it is um, not something where each bank, and it's actually, I think, a benefit to the banks in, in the system, in the industry, um, that our regulators don't um, regulate them 12 different ways out of 12 different Federal Reserve banks, but instead regulate banks across the country consistently. But I do think that there have been some key learnings. I think Barr's report um, provided some good um, key learnings. And I think one of the things that it talked about was the need to escalate, uh, instead of working to get um, consensus on things and, and, and take time to build consensus up the ranks. It's escalate as quick as possible if you have an issue and don't wait uh, to, to build consensus along the way. And I think that is something that uh, is a key learning and, and I think it will benefit um, the, all of the, the, the banks in the country um, by them doing that so that we don't see something like Silicon Valley Bank happening again. Because as a community banker, I'll just finish with, it doesn't help any of us when any bank fails. It, it hurts us all. Simone. Boy, I, I, I couldn't, let me just weigh in on that too, Scott. I couldn't agree more with Simone. It doesn't help any of us. And in fact, uh, Scott, who said the actions of one man can't change the world? And certainly in our space, his lack of action, his lack of oversight, his lack of financial acumen certainly has affected us in a, in a, in a not a very positive way. Well, that actually brings me to whether or not the system is broken or, or in some ways um, worked, in, worked and in other ways did not. Simone, you have, uh, as you referenced, um, the unique vantage point of serving on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and also as chair of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco. And both while very different players both of them related to the banking sector in, in terms of its overall management and also its uh, access to funds that, that keep them liquid. Uh, where is it that you see that the system really broke down and the system worked? Sure. Well, first of all, the Federal Home Loan Bank, um, after what happened on March 9th, 10th, and all the way through the 12th, uh, that following week, the Federal Home Loan Bank system raised over $300 billion to support the outflows 
sorts of funds that, that the rest of the banking system experienced as a result of what happened with one bank, um, $300 billion. So in that sense, the federal home loan bank system worked. I will say also that you know it was very interesting to see what happened um, between uh, Friday, uh, the 9th of March, and or the 10th of March, and then the 12th. Um, when they announced the closure, uh, the first thing that was said was customers of Silicon Valley Bank would have access to only their insured deposits on the following Monday. And it wasn't until the 12th, which um, the announcement that came from the joint release of the Treasury and the FDIC and the Federal Reserve, all of them coming together, that they said all of the deposits would be insured. And I have to tell you, those couple days were the most difficult days of, of you know, I can remember in 40 plus years of banking, the calls that I got from people saying, Simone, is the federal home loan bank going to be able to, you know, advance money on Monday? And so, you know, I was building calls and putting people together. And I have to commend the the, the joint press release and what they did in that, including coming up with the new Federal Reserve. Well, what uh, joint program. press release? You, you, I'm sorry. Um, on the 12th um, of March, um, the uh, FDIC, the Treasury Department, uh, the Federal Reserve, it was a joint um, press release that they put out that basically said all of the, they, it announced for the first time at that point that that uh, Signature Bank was closed. And it said that all of the depositors, not just um, insured deposits, but all of the depositors in both banks would have access to their funds on Monday. And they set up a bridge banks for both banks. I mean, to me, that was honestly amazing that the regulators moved that quickly to set up bridge banks to make sure all of the deposits and then to create the Federal Reserve um, lending program that they put in place for the next day. Let, 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 me, let me push back on that a bit because historically, if memory serves me correct, and, and full disclosure, everyone, I served for two decades on the board of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco's board. But historically, we've always talked about the concept of moral hazard and where it is that, you know, we, we need to let folks fail and let the chips fall where they may because of the fact that otherwise, if what Janet Yellen did and, and the other folks or other entities you talked about come in and rush in and backstop what's happening in the market, you create a perverse incentive for more risk-taking and more irresponsible behavior because they figure that some parent uh, in the form of the federal government is going to come in and save them. How do you respond to that? Well, first, I would say that the FDIC insurance fund is funded by banks. Taxpayers don't pay into the FDIC insurance fund. Banks pay into it to create the insurance to cover banks. Now, what does that mean in terms of the uninsured deposits? Generally, the regulators try and, and do what they did with First Republic, quite honestly, and be able to run a process so that it closes at the end of business on a Friday as one bank that gets closed and, and put into receivership and then opens as a different bank on Monday. And that's what happened with First Republic. They closed as First Republic and, and the regulators moved in. And on Monday, they opened as Chase. Um, so, so that is what they want to do. Now, in terms of moral hazard, um, I think, and, and again, you know, being in the industry and getting the calls that I got over that weekend of, you know, after, after Silicon Valley failed, 
people were frightened. Customers were frightened when they when they weren't going to people weren't going to have access to the uninsured deposits. And think about it: ninety four percent of the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured. Ninety four percent. So, you know that people were were frantic at at not being able to have access to their funds, and that was just going, you know, across not just the customers of Silicon Valley Bank, but customers of all banks were panicking. And so, you know, I think that it was important that they did what they did, and I I, I commend them for it because I know there were probably would have been a lot more bank failures had they not stepped in to calm people's you know nerves and, and calm the markets. James, I'd like your response on the moral hazard issue. Sure, and I think that's a long-term issue, um, Scott. I think that uh, uh, we uh, we don't want to see people or bank management teams take these, uh, you know, outsized risks. Uh, you can see what happened. Uh, you can see what happened to, uh, you know, banking in America. Um, so the near-term fix. Um, you know, I think we were all, as an operator of a bank, all happy to see that because I think it calmed people down. It was unfortunate that the FDIC chair uh, announced that people were going to get certificates uh, over and above their insured, you know, insured limit. I think that was probably, in hindsight, a misstep. But you have to calm the market, and so this particular action that was taken by Treasury, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, I think was appropriate. I think in, from a longer-term perspective, um, you know, the moral hazard issue comes into play. And that's why uh, I think you'll see a change from a regulatory perspective, whether you're a Fed member or a state-chartered non-member like we are, and we're regulated primarily by the FDIC and also the state of California, you're going to see some changes in terms of their oversight. And at our bank, at Five Star Bank, we welcome that scrutiny. We we have described in so many ways and, and so many times uh, the differences between our shop, Five Star Bank, and Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank, and First Republic. We're a community bank. We have diversified funding sources, and where we deploy those funds is in a diversified earning asset base. So we're just different. Um, we don't take those extraordinary risks that I think that that Silicon Valley Bank did. Well, I, I want to ask I want to ask both of you about that because, you know, overall the S and P banking sector, you, if you look at it as an aggregate, is down about nineteen percent plus um, since the start of the fall of, of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, overall, your both of your stocks, respectively, have taken hits. And I, I want to ask you, what's different about your banks today? And James, I'll start with you. Then it then it was, you know, prior to all this happening, because there seems to be a phenomenon going on in the market that's uh, that may or may not be at odds with the fundamentals of. Uh, the institutions in the sector. So, so what's the real story there? Well, I can tell you, there's not much of a difference. If you look to, look at our shop three months ago or last year compared to now, we're still executing. We're still, you know, gaining relationships. We're highly profitable. Our credit quality is very good. Our liquidity is very strong. Our capital is strong. There's not no difference. 
in what we do and how we act and how we support our local communities. It's business as usual. Um, and so to, to be punished, if you will, from a stock valuation perspective, boy, I get it. I get the sector is not in favor right now um, because people are concerned. People are concerned for a bunch of other reasons other than the failure of those three banks you mentioned. Uh, they're concerned about a pending recession and what that would do, uh, or, or, or a possible recession. But we stay the course. We do what we do. We serve our communities. We serve our customers. So there's really no difference uh, today as compared to three months ago. Well, Simone, your, your, your feeling on that? I would say the exact same thing. Well said, James. And, and um, I want to go back to something James said, though, a couple minutes ago about um, you know, your James is different. James's bank, five star bank, is different. I do think that that most banks are community banks. I mean, if you look at, I think there's between four four thousand and five thousand banks now. When I started, and that includes, I think, savings and loans too. It's still between four and five thousand. When I started in the industry, there was over sixteen thousand. And when you look at at you know how many banks are over the hundred billion or over, you know, most of them are. Are, are smaller banks and they serve the communities. And that's what's beautiful is, you know, we, when we're a community bank, you're part of the community. You know, you know, what's going on in that community. You take in deposits from the community and you turn around and lend those funds right back out to help support the community. And that's very different than I think some of the bigger banks that that are very spread out and, and, I, and you know, very monoline in some cases. Well, Simone, I'm glad you came back to that because a number of observers are also looking pretty critically at both regional and community banks and saying that they lack the adequate supervision um, for you know uh, players of their size. And so I really wanna know is how do you respond to those who say maybe in this era, regional community banks don't provide a value that justifies the risks associated with them and a system with uh, fewer banks, but larger banks would be one, easier to monitor, and two, more resilient in times of crisis. What's the value proposition of community banks in this day and age? Well, first, I believe personally that the world would be very different, our country would be very different if all we had were big banks. Um, I really believe, and I've seen it firsthand, how community banks uh, get involved in the communities, they support the local nonprofits, they support you know, the development that needs to be done in those communities, and they support small business. And when you look at you know, who is hiring and, and where the jobs are, they're in that, the, the, the companies, the organizations that, that community banks actually you know, fund and, and loan money to so, and support. I mean, I, I just, I think it would be a very, very different, you know, I, and Scott, you and I have talked over the years because uh, we work together on the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. It's a wonderful life is one of my all-time favorite movies because, you know, that is, you know, the world would be a different place. It's like George Bailey walking around looking at what his little community would have been like yes. if he hadn't been there. That That's a perfect setup for, for me to go to you, James. James, tell us what the world looks like if all we have left are the Leviathans. Well, thank you for the question, Scott. Uh, community banks across the United States and certainly within uh, the capital region support small business. We are the we make more small business loans than the the majors. We're absolutely necessary for economic development within our communities. Simone also spoke about 
uh, all the support we give to the nonprofit community communities and also supporting those who are uh, uh, disadvantaged in our communities. We're an important pillar. And I want to reference back to uh, uh, Treasury Yellen's comments yesterday when she spoke in front of the Independent Community Bankers of America conference going on back in Washington, D.C. right now. She said that community banks are the cornerstone of their communities. That's a pretty significant statement. And Senator Tim Scott from from um, uh, South Carolina echoed those comments. And I want to, I just want for us to think just a moment on one side uh, up in Washington this week, you had the testimony by the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank and others, I think Signature was there too. And then the other side, you had this love fest for community banks uh, uh, from coming from the, the electeds, both the senators and and representatives. It's a different world. We are absolutely necessary um, for our communities to think about what our communities would look like if you just had two or three or five banks serving them, lack of choice, higher concentrations, um, uh, monopoly-like pricing. Uh, it's just it would be a different world. You wouldn't have those relationships that small business owners count on that would they wouldn't exist and that they they value those relationships you see community bankers in the in the supermarket on the playing fields um, it just would be a different experience and i would suggest to you that our economic uh, our overall economy in the united states would be diminished in a material way if there was a concentration of banking power and i think that we're going to leave it there um, thank you both, and uh, uh, good luck in uh, uh, the coming months as uh, we continue to evaluate uh, the circumstances going on in the market. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. All nice right. to see you, Simone. Good to see you, James. And that's our show. Thanks to our guests, and thanks to you for watching Studio Sacramento. I'm Scott Syfax. See you next time right here on KVIE. Thank you for listening to Studio Sacramento from KVIE Public Television. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes to help others find it. All episodes of Studio Sacramento, along with other KVIE programs, are available to watch online at kvie.org slash video.